welcome to the Ludagogy podcast, your monthly games-based learning earworm. I'm Sarah. And I'm Antonis. And this is the Ludagogy podcast. Our guest today is Ken Eklund, a self-identified artist in game design. He's best known for his work in the alternate reality genre, World Without Oil, uh, Future Coast, Giskin Anomaly, and several other games. All of Ken's games are serious games, which means they are socially relevant. They are dealing with uh, subjects like climate change, community resilience, water quality, rethinking education, and many, many pressing modern issues. They often are story-making games, and that means that the players collaboratively explore the subject, they educate themselves and the other players as they go. The aim is to use gameplay to create a space for emergent collective wisdom. Ken lives in the U.S., out in the woods of the state of Oregon, and he told us before this episode that he recently got properly growled at by a bobcat. Yes, indeed. Uh, the, the first time, actually, I've ever been growled at by a bobcat. Um, uh, I, uh, the property I'm on has a, a creek down at the bottom of it, and so I walked to the creek because I could see something was uh, happening in the creek, which I think was a beaver, but that's a separate story. Um, unbeknownst to me, I walked up and I think I was standing right next to a bobcat kitten, which was hiding uh, at my foot with a mom right nearby. So I moved away from that spot so that I could get a better view of the beaver, whereupon the bobcat kitten promptly scrambled up a tree. And so when I looked at, you know, out of the corner of my eye, I saw this blur of motion. I heard something going up the tree and it was the bobcat kitten. And I registered it was bobcat kitten. And I go, oh, well, where's the mother? And that's when the mother let me know that she did not appreciate me looking at her kitten. And so I just kind of got on her wavelength, said, I'm not going to be a problem here. Kind of backed out of the situation and let the family recompose itself. But yes, it was. Kind of an exciting moment there for a while. Nothing quite so fierce as a mother. And I'm really curious about the writer guy. What does this mean? Well, I was kind of an early adopter of um, looking for a website uh, that I could call my own. Um, and so I came up with several candidates. I'm trying to remember what the other ones are now. It's It's been too long. Um, but anyway, writer guy really... Described what I did at the time. Um, I was working more in doing a sort of corporate writing. And my clients would say, oh, we're having some problems with putting this message together. What What is our advertising going to be like? Um, and they would say, let's get that writer guy in here. He always has a bunch of ideas. And so that's where I got my name. And I have writerguy.com and um, been happy with it ever since. So Ken, um, when we uh, started doing this podcast, one of the things that we do is we, we link it every month with the theme in Ludagogi. And, and this month's theme, December's theme, is magic. So um, I'd really like to ask you, uh, what is your connection to this month's theme of magic? What does it say to you? Well, the tarot card that I would identify with the most would be the magician. So I think there's kind of a deep connection um, uh, to that theme. The, the first thing I would mention is just the, the whole idea of a magic circle, you know, the sort of storytelling circle where there's the real world outside of it and inside of it, you've now replaced it with a different world, um, you know, the story world. Um, and that is very much a part of the games that I create, very much a core a mechanic to them, if you will. The idea that I want to create something that you actually get inside. I mean, you enter that magic circle. It's not just that you're looking in, you're actually inside in some way, which really ties into the entire idea be behind alternate reality games. Alternate reality games lay a sort of game layer over the real world that you're in. So that's, that's one of the connections. I would say a strong connection that I have to the word magic. Um, but, but even more generally, magic is something that games really use. So they invoke the power of imagination. So if, um, 
if if for certain people, if I were to suddenly say the floor is lava, for example, then we would embark upon an entire series of behaviors which would appear just totally strange um, to anyone else looking in because we would now be in the magic circle where you had to get around the room by climbing on chairs or tables or uh, throwing uh, cushions onto the floor and bouncing off them, that sort of thing, um, back to that sort of childlike activity. And that's, you know, a magic situation, I would say, that's invoked by four simple words, the floor is lava. Yeah, I, was th- I was thinking about the magic circle. I was reading about one of the games that it, you'd created earlier today, Ed said Omega, and, and sort of the, the power of the magic circle to give people permission to be themselves, but not quite themselves, and therefore be able to to be able to say more or, or do more or be more than they would if they were just being themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that That is indeed kind of the power of the, the magic circle. And a lot of the games that I do are actually based upon my perception of there being uh, some sort of barrier, like a societal barrier to communication. There's a reason that people aren't talking about something. And so, you know, as kind of part of the creative process, I'm really just thinking, how could a game really start to dismantle those barriers or get around those barriers? And yeah, Ed's Omega is, is kind of a perfect example of that. Cool. So with your games, what, what is the thing that distinguishes um, a game that you've worked on? So when somebody looks at a game, uh, what is it that would make them say, this is a Ken Eklund game? Unfortunately, uh, the first thing that I'll just uh, say is that sorry you can't play it anymore um, because my games are kind of events they have a beginning there's a duration uh, they have an end uh, typically because we run out of money uh, or something um, so so if you know if there are listeners who are saying oh I'd like to really experience a Ken Eklund game well actually you can't um, because they do indeed kind of come have come to an end um, but you can kind of experience them again through your imagination. Like if you look at World Without Oil, for example, you know, there's kind of a rich um, legacy of that or a record of that, I think, where you can imagine what it would have been like to play through a fictional oil crisis. You know, you can imagine yourself kind of in that crisis. Um, I guess the other thing uh, about my projects is that although I definitely think about them as games, other people seem to have a little bit of problem thinking about them as games. They they say, "Well, that's not a game. That's a that's a thought experiment. That's a, that's a what if scenario. That's a that's some collaborative future thinking." Um, and I don't uh, really engage in that discussion. I think if you play it, it's a game. Uh, I think people definitely play at the projects that I create. It's just they're not. They're not highly regimented. Um, they don't have a bunch of rules. Um, and I think that's part of their power, actually, the projects I create, is that um, they are very much open, collaborative, uh, story-making processes, whatever you want to call them. So I guess that's, that's uh, what I would say about what a Ken Eklund game is like. But of course, whatever I'm going to do next is probably going to entirely be coming out of some totally different space. So um, I think it's true to say, certainly with the, the games of yours that I know, World Without Oil um, and Ed Z Omega, for example, um, that they there are these repositories of knowledge, these, these artifacts that were created as a result of the game being played, which people can still get access to um, and use as learning resources as well. Yes. That is true. There, there is a record of them. They haven't vanished entirely, um, but you can't. You can't actually. You can, by looking at that record, you can kind of imagine what it was like when it was ongoing. But typically, they're now over. So, so what we'll do is we'll provide the links um, wherever this podcast is is being hosted. We'll provide the links as well to those those repositories of knowledge, those artifacts from the games. Excellent. Thank you. Speaking of artifacts and games, I, I also have another follow-up question for World Without Oil because I'm I've been a climate activist like all my life, and I've been constantly disappointed by the um, formal responses to the crisis that never seem to address it in the long term in terms of solution. And at least in games, we can 
imagine solutions and be a bit more optimistic than what reality uh, at least makes me feel. So um, I, I have a feeling that World Without Oil was designed with kind of that mindset to let people imagine a world without oil, as the title says. So uh, my question is, what role do you think games play in um, imagining futures that can be like drastically different, either solving environmental or societal problems that we have or um, simply letting us evolve into a state that we, we want to be and we're not there yet? That's a great question. And I think games are really key to accomplishing this because um, somebody wrote about World Without Oil. They, they said this is an example of play it before you live it. And and I think that was indeed the power of that particular scenario, that particular game, and also kind of the other games that I've created since then, is really trying to get some semblance of a future reality present in people's minds. For climate change, I would refer people to Future Coast. Uh, that was a game where we the fiction was we were pretending to recover voicemails from the future. So these are messages that people left for other people in the future. Um, and of course, the future was largely climate changed. Um, so you would hear voicemails um, where people were talking about, well, I'm having trouble getting home because the subway is flooded again or, you know, other, boy, I'm, I'm, I'm actually kind of drawing a blank. There were so many different um, voicemails. And I think the key thing to note about Future Coast is we did not hire voice actors to perform voicemails that we had scripted. We just launched a, a phone line and said, please call in and, and make a voicemail that sounds like it came from the future, that it comes from the future. And there was a whole other game element where you had to go recover chronofax, and that was the way that um, they were decoded, and that's the way that the voicemails came to us, et cetera. So there was kind of a lot of gameplay. But the the record of Future Coast, um, all the voicemails uh, are available on SoundCloud. And a lot of those are really evocative in that they do indeed sound like they came from the year 2034, the year 2046, or whatever. And they're dealing with all sorts of themes about climate, about societal breakdown, about societal reorganization, about, you know, there's a really wide variety, you know, kind of, um, and again, like, like you said in the beginning, I mean, kind of emergent crowdsourced wisdom that's evocative of experiencing what the climate change future may be like. And is that um, the societal problems or the the desire to reimagine the future is that part of um, um, your idea making process for creating games, or do you have a specific process through which you're getting ideas for creating your games? I don't really have a specific process. So generally, what happens is there's like a request for a proposal, or there's an art commission that I'm interested in applying for in some way. Or sometimes people contact me and they just say we would like you to submit a proposal. Um, and so there's a very specific set of parameters uh, about that particular problem. Um, what the theme is, who they would like to talk to. Uh, and, and so I design really to those specifications um, or, at, you know, kind of as a springboard. So, so future coast would be an example uh, where a group working on climate change education came to me and said, what would be a game, you know, kind of in this, the style that you create that we might be interested in for our education initiative? And Future Coast was the game that I came up with um, and then championed and eventually it did indeed get funded. Um, but I don't really have, it's, sometimes the process is very collaborative with other people. Sometimes I'm kind of coming up with the game idea, the core game idea all by myself. Um, but it very much is really focused on solving well, whatever problem the, 
you know, the, the people who are issuing the request for a proposal or um, whatever, whatever problem they've identified. Are, are you a little bit like me with the, with the game side of it? Cause I often find that when I'm playing games and, and the listeners can't see this, but I've got a huge number of board games behind me as I'm sitting here um, that I'm always collecting ideas for mechanics and, and trying to find potentially maybe to my detriment, trying to find a way to fit those mechanics into the project I'm doing at the moment, because I find that mechanic quite exciting. Uh, but either way, I, I build up this kind of library um, and you start to be able to read games in a way um, as you as you recognize those. I, I definitely am that way as well. And a lot of the interest that I have is looking for the ways in which people collaborate online and looking for those sorts of collaborations, those sorts of um, self-organizing, especially if they're self-organizing. I say, oh, that's a very natural mechanic you know, for people, especially when they're getting together to tell a story or to solve some sort of problem or gather information, kind of what whatever they might be doing, you know, I look at that, what are the dynamics in that? And I really kind of dissect it or try to, you know, from a game point of view, what are the challenges? What are the rewards? Um, you know, how do they, how do the kind of flows, how do they record us? How do they manage the state of their project? You know, how do they change the state? Uh, so those things are, are very much something that I look at. And, you know, I'm fortunate I'm, I'm near um, Oregon State University. Um, and so I've applied to become a friend of the university, which means that I'm now checking out. They have like 250 board games uh, in their library. And I'm kind of checking them out one by one to just bring them home, take a look at how the mechanics of that work. Um, I'm, I've certainly become a lot more interested in board games, you know, since their popularity, since they really are becoming um, very much a part of game culture now. Uh, they are a part of game culture now, I should say. Um, so I, I'm interested in that as well. And so all of these, all of these things really combine, right, to kind of build up this sort of library of game mechanics in your head. So that's, that's yeah, definitely part of what I'm doing. Very similar to what you say. Yeah. I, I think a lot of the innovation, a lot of the invention that's going on in, in gaming now is in, is in the tabletop world. There seems to be every, every month there's a new mechanic, there's a new, new way of playing. And they're not just, they're not just rejigging what's gone before. They are genuinely, you know, groundbreaking in some cases. So do you have a, do you have a favorite game mechanic or game structure? And if so, where, where have you used it? Oh, let's see. So there, there's a dynamic with games um, that you may have noticed, which has to do with how immersed are you in the game? How, how really kind of emotionally invested are you? Um, and I bring that up because in, in a lot of games, uh, you really can't become too invested. Um, like in Monopoly, for example, if you were like 100% like role-playing uh, the game you might be insufferable, and I know that that kind of happens actually with the game of Monopoly and, and a lot of people. Um, you know, at, at some point, it's good to for if you want to win that game, if you want to play it well, it's good to you know stop channeling your inner um, capitalist and and actually pay attention to the rules and you know to the odds and kind of the the surrounding things about that game. Well, I like to create games where that is not true, that the more you suspend disbelief, the more you emotionally invest yourself in it, the better you play, the better the game thinks, oh, that is great. And you're, if you, if you, you know, go up a couple notches, the game goes, oh, that's even better. And so with collaborative storytelling, that can often be the case. And, and definitely World Without Oil, I think, was kind of the, the landmark example of this where people, they kind of believed at first, you know, like a little bit, they were kind of play acting like the oil crisis was real and they would submit something. And then in the next thing that they would submit, um, the next chronicle of their life in a, in a world without oil, you would get a little bit more immersed. They would, they would become a little bit more really emotionally engaged with how it would feel to be in a world where an oil crisis was going on. 
And they would get more reward for that because they're really helping tell the story. They're kind of raising the bar for the story. So that's, that is in, in, in essence is the mechanic that I kind of really embrace the most where there's no limit really to how emotionally involved you can get. Um, and another thing that's important for me is to now, I think this is kind of a, a recent development in my thinking. I'm just kind of recognizing that like in role-playing, when people are playing role-playing games and they're telling you about the adventures that they had, oftentimes that can just be kind of, um, you know, a boring uh, for people from the outside because you weren't there. You weren't at the table and you don't really understand. And it's really hard for people to tell you why the moments they experienced were so special, um, so really precious to them. And and I'm just realizing that that is actually a good thing, that you're creating a special moment for people. And I'm also kind of re realizing that oftentimes these moments don't fit in neatly to sort of the hero quest narrative that we've got this, you know, um, because it may be a kind of a very small collaborative thing that they did. It doesn't sound spectacular. It's hard for them to convince how together they felt. Um, but those moments are really important. And, you know, I know from a lot of role-playing, those moments are really important. And so, you know, I'm learning, I think I'm trying to teach myself how to create games that really welcome those moments. They're, they're untransferable. They're kind of untranslatable. They don't, you had to be there, you know, or else you don't really understand what was going on. But so that's, that's um, another mechanic I think that I'm really kind of taking on. Um, but we had talked before about um, Ed's at Omega. And so I want to just talk a little bit more about that um, because it, it had, I think, kind of the most powerful um, game mechanic, you know, in my arsenal uh, in it. And that is, I call, uh, summarize it as, hello, I'm playing Edwina. So for Ed Ted Omega, I wanted to examine education. And so I hired a bunch of young people who were either in high school yeah, here in the U.S. or just out of high school, um, and I asked them to role play the the version of themselves that would rage quit high school. Who would just say, you know, this is not working for me. I'm going to I'm going to take a semester off. I'm going to explore other options. Um, and so, uh, for example, Bailey was Edwina, and so she would wear a name tag when we went to a live event that said, "Hello, I'm playing Edwina." And so this was an opportunity for people, you know, the public to engage with a teen who had a lot of things to say about the quality of high school education, about what was going on with them in high school. And I don't know how it is elsewhere, but here in the USA, we have a lot of things going on in high school, like shootings and, uh, you know, drills and, uh, you know, anti-shooter drills and uh, bullying and you know, a number of other things. Plus there's also just kind of the educational system, the sort of factory education system um, on, you know, by that, there's that element to it also. So, but normally you don't have teens who actually talk about that openly. Um, but this was an opportunity for a young person to engage people and, 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 you know, not accept People would, would come, you know, kind of at them and just say, you should get back in school. And they would say, well, wait a minute, let's just unpack that. Why should I get back in school? You know, why are you so invested in whether I'm in school or not? You know, how can you say that that's definitely the best thing for me, you know, in my life, you know, as an individual? And, and those questions just don't get asked. You know, we were talking earlier about these sorts of barriers to communication. So it's at Omega just through the device of hello, I'm playing Edwina and Bailey, who's 21 playing someone, you know, named Edwina, who's very much like her, but 18 and rage quitting high school opens up this whole conversation. And so people can indeed go to edsatomega.org 
um, and still see a lot of the record of kind of what was going on there. Um, it was most powerful, I must say, when, you know, when you're confronting Edwina, you know, or any of the other uh, six uh, Z Omegas um, live to have them kind of talk back with you. And also, it's not all adversarial. It also brought out a lot of people who said, you know what, I was in your situation when I was in high school, um, you know, eight years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, um, I rage quit high school also. And you know what, I've never looked back. I've never really told anyone this, but I went and made my own way. And it was definitely a good thing for me to do. When I, when I read about um, Ed, Ed Zergamega, it, it gave me uh, a lot of the same feeling. And I, and I mentioned earlier that I think a lot of the real innovation is going on in tabletop games rather than maybe video games now. And sort of the new wave of RPGs, if you like, the, the no dice, no masters, belonging out, outside belonging games. I get the same kind of feel from that where people can actually play at being either themselves or they can try out something entirely new, but it's not, it's not what RPGs used to be where, you know, you'd have to learn massive tables of combat systems. And it was all about, you know, fighting things and finding treasure. Um, there are so many games now, which are about self-discovery and about answering these big questions. And, and it, it's just really inspiring. Definitely. <laughs> Yeah, I, I love that. And I also find it super inspiring. I think the main th reason I, I love RPG games so much, especially, is the emotional connection and the, the, the ability to rediscover yourselves, yourself by playing a role or by um, trying to find out which elements of your own character should you put into the fictional character that you're playing, which ones should you leave out, which ones are opposite of what you, of who you are as a person and all this process helps you to basically discover yourself as a person that's 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 incredible it's like uh role-playing games are like a <laughs> psychotherapy uh, <laughs> but um yeah it, it sounds <laughs> it sounds quite uh challenging to design experiences that basically provoke that emotional connection and lateral thinking if you will and answering or questioning things we take for granted. So um, I, I want to learn from your experience. Like, what, what's your process for going um, specifically in that direction, in questioning the, the status quo of society in a way that allows people to explore themselves? Well, I've got a lot of experience for that because if, if you ask certain people who were with me in college what I did for a major, they would probably answer, he is the game master for role-playing games. That's what he does. He, he also has a minor in political science, uh, you know, and some other minors too. Um, and, and so I discovered that quite early on. You know, I could, I could see that people were exploring elements of their identity when they were role-playing. And, and this is 1976, 77, uh, so this is quite early on. I mean, that, you know, we're talking about D and D first edition. They didn't even call them editions at, at that point in time. And, and I also discovered, you know, very early on, essentially that D and D had a bunch of these tables and nobody was really interested in those tables. So I just quickly spun off my own thing where they're, they're basic. There weren't any rules. There weren't any tables. We just had some dice. If I had a percentile dice, you know, and a, piece of paper then we could play and so you know i i started playing a lot of people were interested and i started playing with a lot of people and um of various various ages you know and um, experiences and and so i i really learned that 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 you know this was really part of that magic circle about people stepping in it not just looking in it you know not everyone um really puts a lot of themselves into their characters. There are people who kind of have throwaway characters, but I learned that the game that I was putting on was really evocative for people. And so there was indeed emotional room for them to invest themselves emotionally in their characters. And, and when they have that room, then they will do that for the most part, to varying degrees, depending on how they feel. But so, th so that was something that I brought with me, you know, kind of all the way through my game career, because that was, like I said, very much in the 
the formative years when I was slowly coming to a realization that no, I was not going to be a lawyer when I grew up. <laughs> and if I'm to elevate that um, question about this particular challenge to, in general, challenges in game design, what would you say has been your your greatest challenge in your own game design uh, endeavors, and how did you how did you overcome it if you if you did? Well, the first thing I would say is that I think that a big challenge in game design, especially if you're going to be independent, as I kind of am, um, is to have faith in your own design. Now, this wasn't necessarily a, a big challenge for me, although I, I'm not going to say that it wasn't you know, all along, but I seem to have been blessed somewhere along my life with acquiring a certain amount of Zen about that. So, so I would, my advice would be that cultivate your own Zen about the fact that you know something that, and, and you may not be able to put it into words and you may not be able to put it into words very well, but you do know, you do understand something there's a reason that you're coming up with this design. And, and of course, your design is flawed at the beginning, especially at the beginning. You, and, and you know about all the flaws that are in it. But there's something in there that's worth pursuing, is what I would say. And so to have faith in your own design, you know, that doesn't mean that the current iteration is correct. If people tell you that there are problems with it, you should listen to them. But they are not always telling you exactly what the problem is. They're telling you that the plane that the train is going to leave the track, but they don't necessarily pinpoint what the thing is that actually derailed it or is going to derail it or whatever. So so that's one thing that I would say. And then another thing that I would say, and something that I've learned is if you're going to do your game, you know, do it a hundred percent. And and by that I mean don't um don't cut corners, I guess. And I guess what I'm saying is that there's a temptation when you're actually putting together a game to design it for the average player. You know, who who's kind of the most number of people? I, I really want to make them happy. And, and what I've learned is you really want to pay attention to the people who are most dedicated to your game. And, and if you have a game that has... If you have a game, there are going to be people who are going to play it exceptionally hard. They're going to really invest themselves emotionally. I mean, I've been totally surprised by this, by the number of people, for example, that really plunged into World Without Oil, who are really living that experience. The number of people who really plunged into Future Coast, who really were, you know, they would submit voicemail after voicemail. They were after something, and they were really playing hard. And... And so I just want to make sure that the games that I put on, you know, have that sort of depth to them so that someone who's playing it really hard understands that I'm there with them. I'm playing it. I'm setting up the game just as hard as they're playing it. That's my goal anyway. So those, those are the two things that I kind of see as the, the sort of challenge, which is not the, you know, the normal challenges like where do you find money or, you know, how do you get it? you know, a proper amount of playtesting done. So apart from your own games, um, so which other games do you uh, like to play the most and, and why? Well, I like to play the little role-playing games. And by little, I mean the number of pages in the PDF. So, you know, it's like those role-playing games, which have a specific kind of represent a specific community, a specific part in, point in time. Um, a particular idea about the future in, in their, the PDF is five pages long. And it's got a number of, you know, graphics in it. It's very simple. A group of people can just pick it up in 20 minutes. Boom. They're starting to play and they're starting to have a great time. Those, those are the, those are, are the games that I like the most because that it is such a rich idea. It's such an easy entry point into a view of the world, which I don't have. And, and so I begin to learn it really well because I'm living in it, you know, in that experience. So there's one of those um, PDFs that I really like to just call out in particular, and it's called a uh, long time listener, last time caller. And it's by Jeff Dieterle and it's three pages. And the premise of it is 
uh, the world is ending uh, in an hour, and there's a radio talk show uh, that's going on. And so the, the players create that experience. So somebody becomes essentially the controller at the radio station, and then the other people call in uh, with these, these sorts of conversations. And, and, and I, I can just really talk to that because uh, I was part of a, a games group uh, on Zoom. So it was a game that we could play very successfully on Zoom. Uh, and the games group I was part of was people who are kind of games plus something. So games plus theater, games plus um, writing, uh, you know, games plus uh, novels. Um, so a number of us, uh, we just had the best time because one of us, uh, Magna Jayanth, was kind of the anti-dispensing uh, relationship advice uh, before the end of the world. Uh, and it was just at the same time, the most hilarious, but yet the most meaningful and evocative. I mean, kind of getting down to, and again, this is one of these things, right? You, you kind of had to be there um, to experience it. But it was just like, for me, it was the pinnacle of the sort of experience that these PDFs, that these role-playing scenarios can offer i think this one was really exceptionally well put together very easy for people to enter um you know you if you're a shy person you can play a shy caller uh so so everyone can kind of kind of participate um those are those are the games really that i like the most have you ever have you ever picked up logan no logan yeah it's um it's written by a, tr a transgender man and basically um, you you play a version of his life. So there are all these episodes that have happened in his life and you get to play those and resolve your version of them through dice rolls. It's an absolutely awesome game. I really recommend it. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's another one. It's a 15-page... It's, it's, a, it's a PDF uh, that you can get on itch. So rich source of those kinds of games. <laughs> absolutely. Now I want to go play it immediately. <laughs> yes. There are so many of them now. It's it's good that we kind of exchange notes on these things because uh, it's it's really cheering to see you know how many of how many of these are are being done and how many ideas are being explored both through the theme of the game but also through the gameplay. Yeah, that's the most interesting thing uh, regarding getting the most out of the fewer pages. Like for me, that looks like an enormous challenge. It's like in art when. Um, when you're dealing with minimalism, for example, as a movement, that that's for me the most difficult because you really have to use the smallest uh, number of elements, colors, uh, lines in this case to describe the the whole world uh, that you're building in this in this uh, concept. So, do you have like a hint on how to do this properly? I'd like to learn that skill. <laughs> well, I I remember back when I was writing for you know more commercial games. Um, in preparation for that, I would read haiku. And and so that's just another example, essentially, of the writing art form, but really constrained and achieving a sort of liberation through constraint. There is, uh, Antonis, there is a, there is a, a one-word RPG. Oh, wow. That she can get on itch, which consists of a single page with a, with a, a picture and one word in the middle. And I'm not going to tell you what the word is. Um, because that would spoil it, and obviously these these games developers need supporting, so you need to buy it. But the game's called We Are But Worms. Okay, I'll, I'll go get it now. <laughs> uh, all right, back to back on track. Uh, Ken, what's uh, what's a game that you are playing at the moment, or more than one, if you want? Um, well, one game that I'm playing at the moment is Wordle, but we I won't go down that rabbit hole. Um, so. <laughs> So, so I'm I'm kind of always playing certain games, uh, and and role playing games are games that I'm always playing. Even if I'm right now, I'm between actual sessions, you know, with other people, but I'm always thinking about role playing games and how to make them meaningful, more meaningful for people. Um, so different mechanics. It's it's like I'm kind of always ready. 
um, for someone like the phone to ring and someone just go, we would like you to be a game master for a game. And then I would just spring into action and go, okay, this is what it's going to be like, you know, because I've been working on it at the back of my mind, you know, for the last two years or, or since COVID, whatever. So, so role-playing games, um, you know, tabletop version or Zoom versions in particular, um, you know, home-brewed rules, I would say, are just kind of a requirement now. Um, uh, there's there's a whole discussion we could have essentially uh, on the sort of collective wisdom. I think that gets collected when people hack published rules. Um, I'm a big believer that those are all improvements. Um, the other game that I'm kind of always playing is uh, Magic: The Gathering. So, which is a a card game. Uh, people may have heard of it. Um, it's been around for quite a long time, thirty years. Uh, it it's as a card game, it's kind of constantly coming out with new cards that give new powers. It's this um, a dueling game. Uh, so I'm playing my I, I construct a deck out of my library of cards and I play against your deck uh, constructed out of a library of cards. Um, and I don't actually play Magic the Gathering much anymore because I'm I'm pretty much playing with just one person. So this is a shout out to a certain somebody in uh, San in, in uh, yeah in San Ysidro, California, um, uh, Petaluma, California. Sorry, um, and you know I, I would go into kind of a, a massive trash talk of her um, ineffectual decks, especially against my decks. Um, but I'll, also that's another kind of rabbit hole to get down. But the thing about the interesting thing about Magic: The Gathering is especially in the way I'm playing it. I play it very socially, um, very casually. Um, so oftentimes the rules can get quite complex. And so we are collaborating to try to figure out what the actual outcome is of the cards we just played. Because in Magic the Gathering, there are cards that prevent the game rules from actually happening. So for example, you know, it could be the, my friend's you know, turn but I play a card that says, no, actually you don't get a turn, you know? And, and it just kind of goes on and on for there, but because then she might play a card that says, well, no, actually you didn't play that card. And then I play another card that says, no, actually I did play that card. And then it, it just, it can snowball from there into these uh, incredibly involved things that we just have a huge amount of joy in parsing, in playing out, in parsing out. So that's Magic the Gathering. I'm playing all the time. I'm building another another deck uh, in my mind, the back of my mind, kind of constantly. I think Sarah has heard of it. <laughs> uh, yes, I have heard of it slightly. Yes, it's a major obsession of mine. But although I, I've I've now had to accept that I I just can't keep up with the pace of the of the releases now since Hasbro took over, and I. I I'm not so sure it's going in a good direction, really, but we'll see how it goes. But I've, but it doesn't really matter because you know you you build up these cards from years and years ago, and if you're just playing socially and you're not playing in tournaments, it doesn't really matter that you've got a 25 year old deck or whatever. <laughs> I do have I do have 25 year old decks. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I've got a I've got a green swarm deck which has probably been around for 20 years and it's the most successful deck I've ever built. So that that comes out all the time. So, um, which which games designer do you most admire, and and would you like to see on this podcast? Maybe the time we ask for suggestions. <laughs> well, I, I certainly have a a long list of game designers that I admire, and a lot of those would be names that you know people have heard of. Um, but but what I would like to see for this podcast, you know, if I can be allowed as a guest to like, you know, dictate for it. Um, I think that there's a lot of interesting things happening at the junctions of games and something else. So like I was mentioning this group that I was um, playing a longtime listener with, uh, these are people that have, that have elements in their, of games in their theater or who kind of have one foot in games and one foot in novel writing. Um, a lot of those sorts of, I think there are, are a lot of these games plus blank uh, situations. So the person uh, that I mentioned to you before, uh, I would recommend someone named Mita Williams. Um, 
She's a librarian in Canada. She's a gameful librarian in Canada. Um, she has a, a, a newsletter that I subscribe to. Um, I met her through game projects. Um, we were both working together on a game called Superstruct uh, way back in the day. Um, and she is really good at connecting how games relate to other things that are going on, especially about education and especially kind of about internet culture and those sorts of things. So, you know, I think that's someone uh, that would really be interesting because they're, they're someone who they don't, there isn't really a category for them right now, except, you know, that, that sort of liminal space of games plus, you know, if you look at the edge of games all around everything else. Um, and then, you know, they're in the UK. They're just, you guys are kind of rich in people who are kind of like that. Um, so I'll, I'll just shout out to Splash and Ripple. I want to say hi to Rosie, um, you know, because that's someone also that I think really has created a bunch of interesting projects, which are gameplay, usually situated in the real world. So, you you know, you're walking through the real world in some way, you know, down an urban street or down a country lane. Um, but you're also playing a game. Um, and I think that those sorts of things are really fascinating. Um, because I think that it's, it's really fascinating to have that magic circle, you know, extend out of the computer screen, you know, and into the actual world, especially when we're talking about things like climate change, you know, to be out in the world that we're actually, um, activists to save, you know, to preserve. Um, as much as possible. I think that that really helps to see that sort of integration. Um, and then the other game designers that I'll kind of give a shout out to are just the ones that we've kind of been talking about, the ones who are producing three or five page PDFs and putting them on itch and um, getting these ideas out in the world. I think it's a result of that that we're really entering into this sort of, that we're really in this sort of board game culture, this sort of um, changing the world one small group at a time. Uh, I think that's what's going on. And there are just a lot of people out there, you know, far too many. There are a thousand flowers blooming out there in that regard. Um, and those are the people that I admire who are blooming those flowers. Well, we'll definitely be in touch with those people and uh, and, and see whether they'll be willing to come and come and join us. I'm, I'm just holding up. Obviously, people can't see this, but I'm just holding up nine arches to show to Ken at the moment that's um, a game for getting out and about which I can definitely recommend and it is probably the most beautiful game I've ever seen in my life as well so that's all about um, taking the sort of tabletop game or taking the board game idea but you take it outside um, so you basically they're tarot-like cards and from those you construct an adventure and then you have to go off and have that adventure and it's it all happens outside and then you pass through these mystical arches which um, as far as I can work out, are actual doors in the real world to sort of move up to your next level. So it's a really, really interesting idea. Yeah, that that sounds great. I've I've seen a couple other games that kind of you know do do basically thing. Wow, that's an interesting coincidence. Uh, last week I attended a training on LARP design on how to design live action role play games. And uh, one of the most interesting techniques that was presented was using uh, a tarot card deck for uh, designing characters. And then there were, of course, uh, uh, additional steps that you had to follow. But it was it was very very inspiring as a technique, and I, I loved it. Of course, your listeners can't see, but as you've been talking about LARPing and kind of a lot of these conversations, I'm just over here nodding a lot um, because these things all do. You know, they're all part of the weird soup, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, speaking of soups and cooks, uh, if somebody is a new game designer or an aspiring game designer, what would be an advice that you could give them to start off on the right foot? Well, this, this advice isn't for everyone. So, so there are some people who do very well, I think, in kind of the track uh, of games. and. You know, I've kind of watched this this track develop. When I was in college, there there was no such thing as game design, uh, really. Um, 
you know, none of that industry existed yet. So, so, you know, if, if you have skills as a game artist or as a narrative designer or kind of whatever, and you really want to pursue that, um, pursue that. But I would also just put in a plug again for, um, games plus X. Um, when I first started working in the games industry, I was working for a small company. And so they had a art team. And so the, the art team, for example, had someone who, knew how to develop computer art, but who had also done some architectural training. So they were very good at constructing environments, you know, built environments because they had had that training. You know, there were other people who like were artists, but they had also been dancers. And so they also were good at movement and choreographing, uh, that sort of thing. So I, th I think that that's kind of an infinitely extensible idea. So I really encourage people to explore explore the idea of games plus X, whatever their X is, whatever passion they've got, whatever they've, whatever comes easily to them, even though it does not seem to have any connection to gaming, there actually is a connection. You just don't, don't know what it is. Um, but, but I think that the game industry is going to that connection, the value of that connection is going to emerge. And, and the other thing is that, you know, I see people who jump back and forth between their being in games and being in X. So, for example, like games and novels or games in theater. You know, sometimes those people are really have an opportunity an open an opportunity opens up to them or they open up an opportunity in theater. And so they're now doing theater, you know, immersive theater, maybe, you know, avant-garde theater, maybe. But they have this games training that really informs how they interact with their audiences. But then they might also flip back over and start to do games, but now informed with their experience in theater. You know, so sound would be another example. Um, you know, there, there are just so many, like I said, there's a kind of an infinite number of examples. So don't be afraid to kind of um, get a double major, uh, I think, in your career ideas. Um, and to really keep your options open, you know, because obviously it's not just games plus X as in a binary thing or, you know, a, two things. You can also have games plus X plus Y and games plus X plus Y plus Z. And it all just gets richer and richer. And I think your value to these creative endeavors just goes up the more that you add on those things. You know, it's all part of your portfolio. Your portfolio starts looking really good. Yeah, I, I like I like to think when I'm listening to you saying that 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 potentially we are we're finally leaving the age of the specialist and the the, the generalist is now coming to the fore and the, the value of actually having knowing a little thing a little about a lot of things is actually now becoming apparent uh, rather than sort of like taking a rigid path. Oh wow, I feel seen. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I feel seen also because uh, that's basically what I started doing. I mean, I quit my corporate job, if you will, um, in 1983, and I just started freelancing. And and so I would just kind of shift from opportunity to opportunity. And so I became kind of writing plus games plus internet plus, and I just started adding all in all of these things. Uh, knowing enough about them to get by. So, I, so yes, you know, the fact that I'm here, we're talking together, that is a direct result of me kind of adopting that philosophy uh, really early on uh, for my own life. And it, it did me good. I did okay with it. So sort of sum up then with, with life lessons in mind, as we've just been talking about those, um, what is a lesson that you've learned from designing games which could be taken um, to, to other parts of life? You know, like we were kind of saying with uh, terms of exploring your passions, I mean, it, it is indeed games plus X. And I find that knowing about games is really knowing about systems. And if when I look at my life, I mean, it, I'm just dealing with systems all day long. There are all these human systems that have been constructed. Um and, you know, I, I, you can put your game designer goggles on and you can look at these systems and you can go, 
hey, these are really just crappy systems. I mean, they are just tremendously flawed. You know, here I am on hold, you know, uh, here I am sending another email or, or whatever. Um, and, and a lot of it. Why am I grinding? <laughs> I, exactly. Life is grinding. Uh, and, and, you know, you don't want to be doing that. You want to try to figure out essentially how you can work the systems. Um, and, and I think games are just this really unique perspective on it. At least that's what I find for myself, right? Where I can look at this and I can go, what incentivize this person that I'm dealing with, what incentivizes them? I mean, what would be a win for them? You know where they would actually go home and they would, you know, um, feel like they had done a good job today. So, and and you can kind of see the structure if you've worked with games at all about kind of constructing the rules or whatever. You can see the structures that are built in. And of course, we all we know that. Uh, well, certainly I know that we have this sort of capitalistic, very flawed construction system where people are being rewarded. Um, well, systems are rewarding themselves at the expense of people is kind of how I would put it. And so you really want to figure out what are the hack points uh, for those systems where you can derail them because there's no human on the other end. Uh, you know, the, you really want to respect the humans who are kind of engaged in the system and especially trying to improve it. Um, so, so it's really good at kind of, for me, it's really good at looking at structures, government structures, or other sorts of social structures, and figuring out how to exist and how to thrive even, you know, in those structures. Um, but the biggest thing that I've learned uh, going through my, uh, doing the games that I have and, and exploring the games that I have is getting back to what we talked about earlier in terms of envisioning the future. Games really are a way for you to explore a future self or a future world or a future system. Um, and, and I think the first part of that is just, you look at games, you know, you look at a game like Monopoly and you begin to, you look at what you can do and what you can't do in Monopoly. And kind of the flaws of capitalism are right there in the game, you know, and, and you look at a bunch of people playing Monopoly and a lot of times there's a lot of bad blood being generated around the table. I mean, people are not, you know, Monopoly in my experience certainly is a game where people can get really upset with other people um, through playing that game. So why families get together and play it? I don't know. It's a, it's a deep thing. I certainly, I, I don't uh, do that myself, but so, so you can, you can look at the game rules. You can look at the assumptions in the game. And again, you know, talking about questioning the hero quest sort of narrative, the sort of hero narratives, et cetera, how much individual merit is weighed over collaborative play in games for example, you can't get together, you can't collaborate about that, you can't reach an agreement, you know, um, because the rules say so. All of that, I think, is just really informative for looking at the structures in your own life, which are really game-like in many ways, except, of course, they don't really give you any sort of reward. It's just all grinding. Um, <laughs> and, and then from there, you can begin to imagine... Uh, how the world could be, how your world could be different, how you could be different. You know, some games are so set up that you, you can actually experience the world, you know, in this sort of very visceral way. And we talked about Future Coast, for example. World Without Oil, you know, was also that play it before you live it idea. Um, and again, those were really emotional experiences. People really felt like the future had arrived on their doorsteps. I mean, later on when we had the financial crisis in 2008, um, you know, there were a number of world without oil players who emailed me and just said, well, I, I'm not really that um, taken aback by all this because I feel like we've already been there. And that's kind of a very powerful thing uh, for people. It, it's a very liberating idea, I think, for people to think about the future as something that they've already seen 
rather than something that just kind of comes at them out of the blue, something that they're ready for as opposed to something that just blindsides them. Yeah, I'm very happy that you say that because it's uh, one of the things that I've, I've really been inspired by even further by um, um, getting involved more in game design because I, I like to think myself as a systems thinker. And uh, yeah, I see that all over when it comes to game design. It's you're basically design systems. And it's worth to say uh, that Monopoly was created uh, as a game, as the landlord's game, as it was initially called, to basically highlight those uh, inequalities that are inherent in this system of uh, land ownership. And uh, I have to plug it in this, <laughs> to plug it in now, but um, I've been a, I've been an activist for uh, unconditional basic income for the past decade. <laughs> and I always found it impressive how even a game that is meant to highlight the inequalities of an economic system, uh, like Monopoly is, cannot even begin to, <laughs> to function without players receiving <laughs> an unconditional basic income in the beginning so they can actually play. Otherwise, the game would be over in one round. Yet... In real life economics, we expect people to somehow figure it out. And then we claim that it's, oh, it's hard work or whatever. <laughs> I, I mean, that's a really good point. You know, that, that Monopoly has, you know, unconditional basic income built into it. You know, and it's the most, you know, uh, it's such a paragon of capitalistic thinking. It's been hacked, though, quite a few times. as a, as a really good hack of... Um which uh, actually there's an article about it in Ludogoggy because um, the guy who created it, he created it for his PhD and it's called Utopoly. Um, and it's basically, um, it's, a, it's a game experience that starts out with a futures workshop. Um, and then based on that, the game board will be rebuilt in w whatever model that the people in the workshop decide should, should be built. So alternative currencies are usually put forward because obviously um, money is is just a way of establishing artificial scarcity within the game and of course th there's no need for that if your if your currency is you know kindness or time or love or whatever you don't have that artificial scarcity and then the game is played um, in that way so it's quite interesting I will send you the link Ken <laughs> yeah, that's I, I, I'm glad you brought that up. That's a really important point, I think. You know, if you, if you hang around with futurists uh, for any length of time, they, they will impress upon you the value of the necessity, I should say, of being able to imagine futures. You are not going to get that, you know, humans are not going to get to a positive future that they haven't imagined first. You know, we can get to plenty of negative ones because they'll kind of come at us as a result of unintended consequences. But positive futures, you need someone to actually say, hey, you know, we could do this. And so it's really important um, for games to exist like the ones you're just the hack you're just talking about that actually get you get people to begin thinking about what how it could be different, how it could be better. And, and kind of uh, identify what the sources of problems are, but then to say, this is what it would be like if we were only to fix this particular, you know, flaw, if we were just hack the system that we've got. And, and, and we all kind of know about examples of like science fiction writers writing about something, you know, Star Trek having communicators and now we have cell phones. I mean, these sorts of things where somebody imagined it first and then it came to be. Um, but that that's actually something that we can, you know, as a society, you know, as a collective, the human collective, that's something that we can maximize, you know, or certainly pay more attention to than we have in the past. And that's part of what's going on with this sort of games explosion is you do have all of these reimaginings or opportunities to reimagine, you know, life as we live it, post-apocalyptic, post-singularity, post, you know, zombie apocalypse, uh, you know, kind of whatever. Um, those are all, you know, fictional ways to actually get us to begin to think about um, better lives.
for everyone. Yeah, I mean that's that has been kind of my main drive behind this. <laughs> but uh, yeah, <laughs> my current thinking is um, with with the way things are going in the game industry, at least if we survive the climate crisis, it will be a fun world to live in. It will. So we've been talking about the climate and and also about the utility of games. I mean, how you can use them in the real world. And and I just wanted to mention that I'm actually using kind of my game experience in a uh, fight that I'm having against uh, my local county, uh, having to do with the local landfill, um, which is producing a lot of methane. And they're looking to expand that landfill when really sh- they should be looking to to um, shut it down. And And game design has been very useful for me in looking at how the reward structure is built around that landfill and where the the sort of leverage points are where kind of the human connection the human cost can be brought in to actually engage the county with um getting getting off that uh particular that that particular habit that they've got of putting things in the landfill and to really think about better futures Thank you so much, Ken, for your time and being such an interesting guest. I think I, I don't think we could have asked for a more exciting and um, inspiring maiden episode of uh, the Ludogogi podcast. Um, and I will certainly uh, move forward with asking the people that you recommended if they want to come and join us too. Yes, thank you very much, Ken. Uh, it has been it has been super inspiring. I find it very very. Uh, it, it, it's something that uh, this episode will push me forward as well as a as a creator as a as a podcaster, as a game designer, as a as a facilitator, as a with all the different hats that I have as a generalist, a discussion with you pushes me forward. So thank you very much for that. It's been, I think, a magic time for us all. So thank you very much for having me on the show. Thank you. And this has been the Ludogogi Podcast. Game, game over. over.